is good to be with everyone this morning. I hope we're all excited. You're enjoying your time through our study of the divided kingdom, first and second kings. As you can see from the first uh, slide this morning, we are continuing our study through first and second kings, the divided kingdoms. Our study this morning brings us to chapter 21 of first kings. We're going to study all of the verses in this chapter. 29 total verses. This morning's lesson is the vineyard of death and mercy. And hopefully by the time we're done with our lesson this morning, you see why I have titled the lesson, the vineyard of death and mercy. Let's go through some review here quickly. This is going to be our lesson outline. Again, don't worry if you don't have a chance to write this stuff down. First point is going to be a clash between king and commoner. Second point, an evil queen's plot. Third point, a holy God's judgment. And the fourth and final point, a holy God's mercy. By way of framing our lesson, I'd like to encourage all of us to be on the lookout this morning for the topics of covetousness and justice and mercy as we study God's word hopefully these topics jump off the pages to us because that is in fact what our lesson is about this morning before jumping into our first point in 1509 how many uh, history buffs are here this morning not many really no history buffs you guys are all math nerds? Okay. That's all right. Raise your hand, dude. I'm, I'm a history, but you're a math nerd too, right, Brian? Yeah. All right. I love you. Jack of all trades. 1509 for the history buffs here. King Henry VIII ascended to the English throne. That same year, he married Catherine, Catherine of Aragon. Now, more than anything in the world, King Henry the eighth, we're told, wanted one singular thing. He wanted a male heir in order to secure the Tudor dynasty's succession of kings. No matter the cost, Henry the eighth was bent on obtaining, securing a male heir to his throne. 28 years after taking the English throne himself, in 1537, Henry finally got his oh-so-coveted male heir when baby Prince Edward was born to Henry and his then-wife, Jane Seymour. What did it cost Henry, this, this male heir that he coveted so what did it cost him i would say it cost him an entire lifetime i would say it cost him everything six failed marriages one very public fight with the then pope because the pope wouldn't grant henry's request for a divorce a split from the catholic church and establishing his own church, so that he could be the king not only of England, but of the church as well. This church would become, be, uh, come 
to be known as the Church of England. Henry is but one historic example of what happens when power lacks accountability, when desires go unchecked. Inevitably, ruin follows these things. And such is the case with King Ahab and his wife Jezebel in our story this morning. As we will see as we go through our lesson, desiring anything more than desiring God primarily leads to unthinkable coveting on our behalf, sinful actions, and ultimately it leads to death. Let's jump into our first point this morning, a clash between king and commoner. Read the first four verses with me if you would. Once again, we are in 1 Kings chapter 21, reading verses 1 through 4. Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may, give, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house. And I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. By the way, how many of us, Brian, was it last week or two weeks ago that you taught? Maybe because the impression was so good. It is still fresh in my mind. Was anybody here for the impression that uh, Brian made? Of, of Ahab, I think it was Ahab, right? It was uh, it, his, his babyish attitude. Is that correct? Yeah, <laughs> it's correct. Hopefully you remember it. I was going to do it myself, but I figured, you know, Brian's already done it, and he did such a great job at mimicking this babyish attitude of Ahab that it would do no justice for me to try to do the same thing. If you didn't hear it, go back a few Sundays and listen to it. It's a great impression of what Ahab likely sounded like. The point is that he's a baby. Verse 1 starts off by stating, now it came about after these things. And so in an effort to understand the context of our lesson, we must ask what things? What things is verse 1 referring to? There is some scholarly disagreement as to the sources for chapter 1 and the order of chapters. The Greek versions of 1 Kings that are written actually include chapter 21, or place chapter 21, between chapters 19 and 20, meaning that chapter 21 in the Greek versions is actually chapter 20. However, I think that chapter 21 is in its rightful place because of the prophecies expressed in this chapter and the fact that they are indeed fulfilled in the next chapter, as we will see next week, chapter 22. Additionally, the phrase, now it came about after these things, provides a natural flow as we read from chapter 20 into chapter 
21. That's why I think that chapter 21 is in its rightful place. Now, it came about after these things refers, and you can flip over a page if you'd like to see what I'm discussing with you. Now, it came about after these things refers to the last part of chapter 20. The central idea of this last part of chapter 20 is judgment. And not just judgment, but specifically judgment of Ahab and judgment of Israel is where chapter 20 leaves off. There's a story, and I'll do my best to summarize it for you in just a few sentences, but there's a prophet who is going to deliver a word of the Lord to Ahab, and he gets creative with how he's going to deliver it. He asks one prophet to strike him in the face, and the prophet says no, so he goes to another and says, strike me in the face, and that prophet takes advantage of the request and strikes him right in the face. And he, this prophet bandages himself up, hides himself, and waits for Ahab on the side of a road. And as Ahab approaches, this prophet tells Ahab a story. The story is that this prophet was assigned a man to protect in the midst of battle. And the person that assigned this, this man so that the prophet could protect him told him, you must guard him with your life. If, if anything should happen to this man, it will be your life for his life. This prophet tells Ahab, I, I, I got busy doing this and that. I was here and there. And, and so he was gone. I lost him. Or he's dead. I don't know what happened to him. And Ahab becomes very angry at this story and says, then, then you basically, you got what you deserved because he's bandaged up. The prophet removes his bandages, discloses his identity to Ahab. At that point, Ahab realizes, I, I am judging myself. This is an indictment of myself. Judgment has come to Ahab. The prophet delivers this devastating news it's not actually my life that's done it's your life ahab that is done why because ben hadad had been given to ahab not once but twice and twice ahab lets him go the man that had been chosen for destruction by the lord ahab decided i'm gonna let you go in freedom he returns, we're told, at the very end of chapter 20, sullen and vexed, he returns to Samaria. And so it's after these things that we pick up. And so in these first four verses that we have read, our story opens up with a vineyard. The vineyard, we're told, is owned by a man named Naboth from Jezreel. And the vineyard is located next to Ahab's palace. I'll show you a map of Jezreel here as we talk about it for just a few moments. Now, it's interesting. The main palace, the, the, the king's palace, was located in Samaria, not in Jezreel. Samaria was the capital of Israel at this time. But Ahab had built a second palace, a sort of getaway for himself in Jezreel. And he did it in Jezreel for, for certain reasons. It was strategically located, this, this area of Jezreel. And I made the map too big. I apologize. I'm looking at it right now. I apologize. It's too big. So bear with me. Jezreel is actually down at the south, okay? 
but you'd have to take my word for it. Galilee is to the north, and Samaria is even further south than Jezreel. It's a valley, and it separates Galilee from Samaria. So it provided cover for Ahab from the north. It provided cover from the south. It was a, a, a place that converged routes for trading, for travel. And it was a very, very strategic military site. In fact, more than 30 biblical battles have taken place in Jezreel. Saul and his army fight against the Philistines in Jezreel. Gideon and his army fight against the Midianites. And even Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, against the Ottomans. That, that battle actually takes place in the valley of Jezreel. This is also the place of Megiddo or Armageddon. So it has a lot of militaristic significance. Now, at first glance, Ahab's request seems reasonable. Naboth's vineyard is adjacent to Ahab's palace and would therefore provide a convenient access for Ahab. And in exchange, Ahab seems to offer what is fair. He says, listen, give me your vineyard and I'll give you one better. Or if, if you'd like, if you prefer, I'll give you cash for your vineyard. Seems like a reasonable offer. There doesn't seem to be any underhandedness by Ahab. There, we're not told in the narrative that, that he was saying this, but really meant to be underhanded with Naboth, so we can't conclude that. It, it just seems like a reasonable offer. In, in actuality, however, Ahab's request is extremely wicked. And it pits Naboth between a rock and a hard place. Ahab's wickedness is not so much in his offer, but instead in the very request that he makes of Naboth. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23. Uh, actually, just verse 23. Leviticus 25, verse 23. This portion of Leviticus will provide us with clarity as to why Ahab's request of Naboth was so wicked. Leviticus 25, 23 says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. The premise of this Leviticus passage is that the land of Israel was God's. And that to the extent that Israelites had any land whatsoever, it was to be considered an inheritance from God. This meant that individuals could not sell land in perpetuity. It also meant that individuals could not own land in perpetuity. And all that means is that Israelites could not own and sell land like we do today because it wasn't theirs to begin with. That's the point. There were instances in which Israelites could leverage land to get out of certain situations, but these instances were very, very limited, and they were always temporary. 
And so herein lies the wickedness of Ahab, knowing that his request is not a lawful request. He ignores God's law anyway. He makes his request anyway. In effect, Ahab's request of Naboth reveals his true character. The fact that he desires, that his desires, excuse me, are more important than even obeying God's law. It is clear that Ahab has never met a greater man than himself. You ever met anyone like that? Never met a greater man than myself was Ahab's attitude. And as such, only his desires and only his needs really mattered. He had no regard for God, God's law, or the difficult positions his requests would put his own people in. He only cared about himself. Naboth's response is a resounding no, and rightfully so. Naboth's response in these first four verses infers the central reason for his rejection of Ahab's offer. And it isn't himself. Naboth doesn't say no because he doesn't want to give the king his land, his vineyard. Instead, it's because of God. Unlike Ahab, Naboth takes God's law serious and invokes the Lord's authority for his rejection and refers to the vineyard as the inheritance of my father's rightly framing the reality that the vineyard is not his to sell. And Ahab knew all of this. Ahab's reaction is childish. I find it interesting that his reaction in verse 4 is exactly like the reaction in chapter 20, verse 43. We're told that he's sullen and he's vexed. These are great words. Great words, both combine several emotions to communicate essentially the same thing. Sullen paints a picture of being sad and mad and resentful and even stubborn all at the same time. Vexed paints a picture of, of being angry, raging. By the way, have you guys ever heard of the term rage quit? Okay, good. Got some friends here. Yep, I know that my, my friends here, we're going through the same stage of life, and so we'll share uh, vernacular every now and again that, that we are learned from our children. And one of the things that, that I have learned is that in video games or in the video game world, the term rage quit is a real thing. So like if you're losing, if someone is, is beating you up or, you know, destroying you or whatever, uh, you might rage quit. And that means you just, you basically gave up in a, in a fit of anger. You, you rage quit. Uh, my sons say it all the time. They say it to themselves. They say it to people that they're talking to on this microphone. Uh, so I bring this up because in effect, if, if you're a younger person here today and you don't understand what I'm saying, Ahab basically rage quit. That's what he did here. He, he rage quit. He just goes off to himself. He's He's angry, he's frustrated, he's enraged, he's all of these things at the same time. This is exactly the type of response we'd expect from a godless king to a godly response. By way of application, let me just say a few things 
These first four verses are an invitation for us this morning to search our hearts, to query ourselves as to whether we desire what has been created more than we desire our creator. Whether our desires bring glory to God or shame to the gospel, whether our desires respect those around us or forsake them. Introspection is never easy. It's something that we avoid, but Scripture calls us to do it, and in this case, it is applicable and right that we would search our hearts. C.S. Lewis said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Listen, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too, we are far too easily pleased. Before we jump away into our next point, I would ask that you just, you just think on these things, dwell on these things. Are you, am I, too easily pleased with created things that I can be compared to an ignorant child who wants to continue to play in the mud because I have no conceivable notion of the glory that God offers me by way of his joy. That was true for Ahab. It may be true, it may be true for some of us here today. And if it is, I pray that this is our wake-up call that we awake from our slumber, that we react away from our ignorance and understand that the incomparable joy that is offered us by way of obedience to God, by way of desiring Him more than anything else, doesn't compare to the temporary mud pies that we think we so much want. We have to move on for the sake of time, but that's a powerful way to open. Point number two, an evil queen's plot. An evil queen's plot. Read verses 5 through 16 with me. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, Because... I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and he said, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city 
Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Verse 11, So the men of this city, of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the, ta- of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him even against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. Verse 16, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. A wife of noble character, says Proverbs chapter 31. Who can find? She is worth far more than rubies, says Solomon. No truer a word has ever been spoken. And I, I, I mean that with everything I have inside of me. This side of Eden I believe that there is no greater treasure for a man. There is no greater treasure for a man than to have a wife by his side of noble character. She is, in fact, more valuable than rubies. Conversely, and a bit comically, Proverbs 21.9 says that it is Better to live on a corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. You get the picture? Think about that for just a bit. A corner on the roof of your house, okay, through this Texas weather, (laughs) all right, is better than living with a quarrelsome wife. Jezebel, Ahab would have done well, by the way, to to, to follow this advice. He he would have been much better off and avoided much heartache had he just climbed the stairs of his palace and lived the rest of his days in a corner of his roof. He would have been much better off, but he didn't do that. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, enters the narrative in verse 5. And she inquires of her husband why he is so sullen and vexed. She wants to know why he's not eating, like any good wife would want to know. Ahab's response is like that of my three boys. 
when, they, when they're mad about something that they know that they should not be mad about, they have no business being mad about it, and dad asks them, why are you mad? They, they always respond the same way. You guys, you guys know this if you have children. Their response goes something like this. They respond with between 80 to 98% of the truth. But the percentage amount, be it 20% or 2%, that is left out, is always the most important part of the story. It is always the most important part of the story. And it is always the part of the story that will paint them and us in a positive light instead of a negative one. That's Ahab's response. For the most part, Ahab recounts his clash with Naboth accurately. But toward the end of verse 6, and you can look there if you'd like, he omits the fact that Naboth said, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Instead, he just tells his wife, Naboth said no. Placing the blame squarely on Naboth's shoulders when the blame should have been squarely on Ahab's shoulders. Now, the reality is that even if Ahab had been 100% truthful, even if he had placed the blame on himself as he should have instead of Naboth, even if he would have confessed his selfishness, it wouldn't have mattered. Because Jezebel was one wicked, wicked woman. She was a wicked, wicked woman. One commentator rightly notes, we have already seen hints that it is Jezebel and not the rather passive Ahab who is the real driving force in the kingdom of Israel. In chapter 18, we're told, for example, that it was Jezebel and not Ahab that destroyed the Lord's prophets. In chapter 19, she threatens Elijah with death. And not only does she threaten Elijah, she manages to scare Elijah. She is a driving force, to be sure. Unbeholden to God's laws and consumed only by selfish gain, Ahab's response angers Jezebel and she sarcastically asks in verse 7, do you now reign over Israel? What does she mean there? It, it, it's sarcasm for, don't you know you're king, dummy? Don't you know that you can do whatever you want? Why don't you just take what you want is what she's implying with that question in verse 7. Her sarcasm gives way to a simple plot. But this simple plot carries with it devastating effects. She will kill Naboth by leveraging Ahab's authority as king and her well-deserved reputation as a murderer. And once Naboth is eliminated, Ahab will simply take possession of what he wants. Easy, right? Like our kids, everything is easy, right? Look, Mom, I'm going to be here today, and I'm going to go here, and I'm going to be, and I'll be back at 10 o'clock. Easy. That's the attitude. No, no worries. No worries whatsoever. How does she leverage Ahab's authority? 
She leverages Ahab's authority in verse 8 by writing letters in his name and using his seal. And it's interesting here that we're told that these letters are written to the elders and nobles who lived with Naboth. The leaders are instructed to organize a fast, seat Naboth at the head of the people, and seat two worthless men before him so they can bear false witness against Naboth. They accuse him of two central things, these these worthless men. They accuse him of blasphemy, and that's against God, and treason, and that's against Ahab. And it's worth noting here that the word worthless is Belial. Belial in Hebrew and literally means without worth or good for nothing or wicked. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 uses this exact word to describe the lawlessness and wickedness of Satan. That's how these two men are described wicked and lawless it's also worth noting that there's two men because that's exactly what jewish law required when one was going to present an accusation against someone else you had to have two witnesses so that's why there's two of them in verses 11 through 15 her plot comes to life and is executed Pardon the pun there, but it is executed exactly the way she commanded. And here we see how she leveraged her murderous reputation to manipulate and control even those who were influential city leaders. Sadly, these so-called leaders who were so easily convinced to participate in the murder of an innocent man were the very men that were supposed to protect and watch over people like Naboth. I have to confess that inevitably as I read through this lesson and and I studied it for for personal gain and for preparation of of this lesson, I I read about Naboth and his death, excuse me, and I was reminded of, of similar deaths. For example, Uriah, the Hittite. You'll recall David similarly placed Uriah at the head of the most intense part of the war to ensure that this man who was not a man of war would die. And why? So that David could remain with Uriah's wife after having committed adultery with Bathsheba. And I could go on and on with deaths like that, but really the only one that I was reminded of and really matters is is the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Christ was falsely accused by at least two witnesses. He was unjustly tried and condemned for things he had not done. And ultimately, he was murdered at the hands of the very people, listen, that should have been his greatest defenders. The similarities are striking. They are striking. As depraved as the actions of Jezebel are here, though, Ahab's actions are are at least equally as depraved, if not even more so, knowing the innocent blood that was shed for this so-coveted vineyard of his. 
should have caused Ahab to reject the vineyard. It should have caused him to administer justice on his own wife, Jezebel, for her godless actions. But instead, as Paul says in Romans, Ahab just gave hearty approval to the actions of Jezebel and was oh so happy to take over this vineyard. By way of application, I want to say just a few things. I'd like to ask that you think through in your heart for just a few moments what you think of when it comes to the topics of justice and injustice. For example, how do you react when you are treated with a lack of justice? How do you react when those around you are treated with a lack of justice? I'll admit to you this morning that there are other applications that are appropriate, as we've read through verses 5 through 16. But this, this topic of justice stayed with me, and I want to bring it out of these verses because I think it's important to do so, and I'll show you why in just a few moments. As you ask yourself those questions, I have to admit that in reading this section of 1 Kings, I, it was a difficult portion to, to read. Justice as a thought and an action, I believe, is an inherent sense that God has placed in every single one of us. And not just every single one of us here, but in humanity. It is an inherent sense with which we are born that was placed or written on our hearts by God himself. The notion of justice. As such, when we suffer injustice, when we are wounded deeply by injustice, we don't like it. When we witness injustice done to others, we are angered blindly because deep within us we know that injustice just isn't right. Worsening the reality that we're all exposed to is that with every year that passes, we learn one very difficult lesson. Life just isn't fair. Right? Life just isn't fair. I didn't get to be 6'4". Too bad, so sad. Life just isn't fair. Doesn't turn out the way we always want it to turn out. And so in these realizations, in this reality, it can be tempting, especially when we read stories like that of Naboth's death, to yell out, where's God in all of this? Why do the wicked get away with theirs? Let me encourage you to maintain a biblical and a godly perspective on the matter of justice and injustice by offering you just a few thoughts before we move on to the third point. First thought, even the most noble pursuits of wretched sinners, even the pursuit of justice, but even the most noble pursuits of wretched sinners are but sinful pursuits in the eyes of a holy God. 
Psalm 14 and Romans 3 make clear and remind us we all have fallen short of God's perfect standard. Therefore, the application of holy justice demands our death and eternal stay in hell. And that is a sobering reality that we do well to carry with us the rest of our lives. That's justice. Lest we're tempted this morning to pretend that we're any better than Jezebel and Ahab because we might say, well, I didn't do that. I didn't take a man's vineyard. I didn't lie like that. Lest we're tempted to think that we're any better than these two characters. We do well to live in the reality that we are guilty, as R.C. Sproul loved to say, of cosmic treason against the holy creator. Case has been closed. Evidence has been presented. We are guilty. We are guilty of cosmic treason. And yet, we have received unmerited grace and not applicable justice. And so, we would do well to not get too high on ourselves, not question God too much as to where he is when bad things happen to good people because that's a faulty premise. There are no good people that bad things happen to. Nevertheless, so that I don't leave you in this completely depressed state of mind, let me offer some words of encouragement by something that I was very, very encouraged by. Because it is fair to say that we're living our Christian lives and we don't do certain things because we want to honor the Lord. We refrain from certain things or we do certain things because we want to bring glory to the Lord. But as we look around in this unholy world, we see that those who are not doing those things seem to prosper and we don't always prosper. And that's a very fair thought. Psalm 73 I'm not going to read the entire psalm. I encourage you to do so on your own time. Maybe later this afternoon, there's 28 verses. But I hope you're encouraged by a psalm of Asaph. He says in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Listen, verse 2, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Verse 11, they saw, they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Verse 13, 
rings especially near. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He comes to this conclusion in verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Rest assured, there is justice. Rest assured that what you and I do for the glory of God is noticed. It may not be noticed by those of this world. And it may seem that they gain while we lose. But justice will be administered. It's just better to leave that justice to God, not to ourselves. Point three. A holy God's judgment. Read verses 17 through 26 with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, of Israel who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? You shall speak to him saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel to sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the, in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably, abominably, in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. A difficult read. A difficult read, to be sure. The all-too-familiar word of the Lord once again visits the prophet Elijah. And again, the word of the Lord is for the judgment of Ahab. God instructs Elijah to go down to meet Ahab, and this is appropriate because Samaria is at a higher elevation than Jezreel. 
And so if Elijah is in Samaria, he would have to travel downward to Jezreel to meet Ahab. He's told to go down and meet Ahab. And although Elijah's task is not an easy task, although the the task is not an enjoyable task, I want you to notice how Elijah's obedience remains swift. There's no questioning in Elijah, no hemming or hawing, or maybe you want to rethink this, Lord. No, he just does what the Lord asks him to do. As it pertains to Naboth, both Ahab and Jezebel are guilty of breaking two main commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not covet. And so, in keeping in the spirit of the law, God's judgment of Ahab and Jezebel requires a life for a life. That is what Elijah is to tell them. The manner in which God instructs Elijah to communicate his judgment to Ahab is purposely graphic in these verses. I hope you caught it. The word, the use of the word dog here heightens that graphic description. Because a dog to the Jews in those days was similar to swine, to pigs. It was the the worst of the worst, the lowliest of the lowly. That's why that, that, that word is used there, dogs, to heighten the graphic nature of this description. It's also used to express the extreme anger of God toward Ahab. Ahab's initial reaction is a typical reaction of a sinner who hates God. Ignoring the inward, he focuses on the exterior. He's joking with Elijah. Have you found me? Oh, my enemy? There's sarcasm in there. But Elijah knows his tricks. He's dealt with Ahab before. He quickly returns the conversation to the very reason he is there. And he says something that's striking to Ahab. He says, you've given yourself over to evil. And I was struck by that because in effect what, what Elijah says to Ahab there is that you've intentionally given your life to doing only evil. The legacy that you leave behind will be one of an evil man. And as I get older, legacy becomes a bit more important to me and I wondered I don't want to leave a evil legacy. Don't want to be known as a man and I hope that you don't want to be known as a man or a woman who have given ourselves over to doing evil. That was Ahab's life. Elijah also indicts him because he has made Israel sin. Not only does God's judgment of Ahab demand his life, like that of Jeroboam and Baasha, God's judgment will erase Ahab's entire legacy and descendants. Listen to me closely here. Thus ensuring Ahab's line is entirely cut off. And for kings who knew that their physical time on earth 
would be momentary and temporary. Having male descendants was everything because it was the only way they could ensure that their legacy would continue. Jezebel's judgment is equally as horrific. Elijah pronounces not only that she will die, but that she will die, she will be eaten by dogs in her death, meaning that she will not get a proper burial. And that was devastating. We'll jump into our fourth point to wrap up our lesson this morning, but let me just say that if you need any confirmation of why justice is left better to the Lord than to ourselves, you need no more proof than verses 5 through 16. The best minds given any amount of time could not have come up with a more devastating judgment on Ahab and Jezebel than God did in verses 5 through 16. But we go from a holy God's judgment to a holy God's mercy Verse 27, it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. I wonder if I ask for your honesty, how many of you would actually raise your hand if I asked? How many of us would have preferred and liked that this chapter ended in verse 26? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My sinful heart, man. I want everybody else who crosses red lights to get tickets, but I don't want me to get tickets if I run a red light i want ahab to just get what's coming to him just don't give me what's coming to me lord a holy god's mercy is such a beautiful thing this this judgment was so heavy on ahab that it actually caused him to repent and what is God's judgment for if not for the purpose of repentance? David said in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So as much as I confess to you that I would have preferred that we ended in verse 26, I'm humbled and thankful that verses 27 through 29 exist because they are a reminder of God's incredible mercy to me. And I hope they are that to you also. I'll wrap up with this. May James chapter 2 verse 13 remain in our hearts this week where he says, For judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. I want to encourage you to show mercy and leave justice to God because I assure you that no matter how bad you think your justice is, 
It can never be worse than a holy and perfect God's justice. Leave justice to God. Show mercy because you have been shown mercy. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word and for this time together. Thankful for this uh, time, Lord, and I pray that we have been strengthened, that your word would stay in our hearts this week. Give us strength, Lord, to continue to live for you, to continue to honor and glorify you, Lord, understanding that you see all things and that you will, at your time, administer the right justice rightly, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.